You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once-daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The right to speak and to listen has been on full display over the past two weeks. Today, we talk about speech during the Senate Intelligence Committee hearings, speech from comedians, and speech on college campuses. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Beth is back. Nicholas, insert celebratory music here. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, it's good to talk again, although I don't know what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's exactly news, why you're right? gone. It was so boring. It was a bad time for me to be gone. Well, we're oh. going to cover the latest Senate Intelligence Committee hearings and the pearls today. In the suit, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things that you and I don't like discussing. We decided to like do this big basket of what we feel is mostly nonsense and talk about where we are in terms of political correctness in- after Kathy Griffin and Bill Maher and the continued conversation about college students. And then the heels will talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. 
And stay tuned for the end of the show because we have a special closer from the Revolution Choir, a group of, it's like 20 fun men and women in Oregon, and they sing original compositions about political topics that are on the pulse of our nation. And it's so amazing, guys. They sent us one to share at the end of the show. So stay tuned till the end. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm also excited about all the people who are helping with our membership drive, which we will not talk about every single episode from now on, but we really want to get to that $3,000 a month first goal because we have a plan of a special series to share with you if we reach that goal. So $3,000 gets us to the point where we're in the black. We're actually covering all of our past expenses and able to pay for the show going forward. We so appreciate everyone who's contributed so far. If you haven't, please go over to Patreon. We're trying to make um, the value proposition makes sense for you because in addition to what we already give you for free, we're putting some, what does Nicholas call it? The secret garden of content yeah, the over secret there on garden, Patreon. The secret garden of bonus content. All right. So Sarah, I did not get to watch all of the hearings with McCabe, Rosenstein, Coates, and Rogers. I watched a lot of it via video clip on Twitter. And then I did watch the full Comey hearing just 24 hours later. That's exactly where I am. I didn't watch all of the McCabe, Coates, Rogers. I did see that, you know, it seemed to sort of be a record on a loop with them saying, I'm not comfortable talking about that. I'm not comfortable talking. I don't feel like I can talk about that. So I'm not sure we missed that much not watching the whole thing. I did watch the entire Comey hearing live. It was very exciting. Um, it was like an event. So we're in the bath of the same spots. I thought it might be helpful for us to zoom out for a second to put all of this into context and just talk a little bit about the roles of all the people involved here. So the Senate Intelligence Committee has only existed since 1976, and it exists to broadly oversee all of the U.S. government's intelligence activities, which are uh, kind of deep and wide when you start pulling into them. And they are supposed to, quote, provide vigilant legislative oversight over the intelligence activities of the United States to assure that such activities are in conformity with the Constitution and laws of the United States. Very broad purview. It's a 15-member committee, and the majority party gets a one-seat majority on that committee. So eight Republicans, seven Democrats. That doesn't change depending on the ratio of the majority. Just whichever party has the majority gets that one seat in addition to the seven. So the hearings with Rosenstein, McCabe, Coates, and Rogers um, – we're really focusing in on the DNI, DNI, the Office of the Director of the National Intelligence. And do you want to talk about how that was set, established? Yeah. So that was established in 2004 under a statute called the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence is supposed to be the principal intelligence advisor to the president and the manager of the National Intelligence Program. So Dan Coates, who is the DNI, has a budget of more than $50 billion and is supposed to integrate the efforts of the entire intelligence community. So there are 17 different elements of that intelligence community. The DNI is where all of that is supposed to come together and help the White House figure out what to do with it. And we're going to link some resources on this in the show notes. So that's the DNI's role. Admiral Rogers is the director of the NSA, which is supposed to (laughs) – the NSA website is kind of fun to poke around on if you haven't done that because it really does not say a lot. (laughs) It says, we're amazing. We save lives. 
It's almost like you can hear superhero music in the background, da-da-da-da, NSA, but it doesn't say a lot about what they actually do. The closest thing to, um, like, nouns and verbs I could find <laughs> was that the NSA is tasked with discovering adversaries' secrets, protecting U.S. secrets, and outmaneuvering our adversaries in cyberspace, while at the same time protecting the privacy rights of the American people. Can you feel the dance in there, Sarah? Yeah. Well, and also, no judgment, but you guys aren't doing that great of a job. That sounded like judgment, but it was judgment. Well, so those are the folks that are here in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, right before James Comey's testimony. And the hearing with them and Rod Rosenstein, who is the acting attorney general for matters related to the Russia probe, and Andrew McCabe, who, McCabe, who is the acting FBI director, was centered, it seemed primarily on trying to understand whether other administration officials had had the same experience that the committee believed James Comey had had. Namely, has the president tried in any way to undermine efforts to investigate everything surrounding the 2016 election? But are any of these agencies directly investigating the Russian interference in our election? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, why would they, why would they, why would he be pressuring them when they're not leading the investigation? I don't know what they're doing, to be honest. And what I saw from the hearing was not particularly illuminating. I would hope that the DNI had a pretty good understanding of what the intelligence was surrounding the 2016 election. I would hope that the NSA, I mean, the NSA definitely had involvement in terms of that whole series of questions that were asked several hearings ago about masking and unmasking. How did we, how right. did we know that Michael Flynn had these contacts with Russia? So, so I do think they're all at least tangentially involved and probably involved in some depth. But what they kept saying to the committee in response to all questions was just, we're not comfortable talking to you about this in an open setting. And then the clip that got, I think, the most play was an exchange with Senator Angus King, who is an independent senator from the state of Maine, where he said, I don't understand why you aren't answering directly the question of whether President Trump asked you to back off of the Russia investigation. And we'll play a little bit of that clip for you now. So then I'll ask both of you the same question. Why are you not answering these questions? Is there an invocation by the president of the United States of executive privilege? Is there or not? Not that I'm aware of. Then why are you not answering because our questions? I feel questions? it is inappropriate, Senator. I, what you feel isn't relevant, Admiral. What's, I, what, what you feel isn't the answer. The I answer stand is accountable. why are you not answering the questions? Is it an invocation of executive privilege? If there is, then let's know about it. If there isn't, answer the questions. I stand by the comments I've made. I'm not interested in repeating myself, sir. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a contentious way. Well, I do mean it in a contentious yes, way. I don't understand why you're not answering our questions. You can't, when, when you were, when you were uh, confirmed before the Armed Services Committee, you took an oath. Do you solemnly swear to give the committee the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. You answered yes to that. And I've also answered that those conversations were classified and it is not appropriate in an open forum to discuss those classified conversations. What is classified about a conversation involving whether or not you should intervene in the FBI investigation? Sir, I stand by my previous comments. Mr. Coates, same series of questions. What's the basis for your refusal to answer these questions today? Uh, the basis is the, what I've uh, 
previously explained, I do not believe it is appropriate for me to What's the Get basis? I'm not satisfied with I do not believe it is appropriate or I do not feel I should answer. I want to uh, understand a legal basis. You swore that oath to tell us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and today you are refusing to do so. What is the legal basis for your refusal to testify to this committee? I'm not sure I have a legal basis. So they said they had no legal basis to not answer these questions, Sarah. I thought this was stunning. Yeah, I did too. And I thought that... I really like, and I don't remember if it was Angus King, but somebody said, like, I don't care if you're comfortable or not. Like, that's not why you're here. It's, I don't really care how you feel or if you're comfortable. Answer my question or have a reason that you're not answering my question, not just, I don't feel like it's a good idea. That's not the, that's not good enough for the Senate Intelligence Committee. It was also interesting, Senator McCain, who did not have a good day during the Comey hearing. We can talk about that in a second. But I thought his comments in this hearing made a lot of sense when he said, Hey, this morning in the Washington Post, we all read that the president asked you, DNI Coates, not to fuel the fire on the Russia investigation. Isn't it kind of Orwellian that we can read that in the Washington Post this morning and not talk about it in a public hearing before the United States Congress? Right. No, I think he's totally dead on with that. Other moments that got some play, um, Senator Harris from California wanted assurance from the deputy attorney general that Robert Mueller, the special counsel, would have true independence in this investigation. So with the special counsel role, the special counsel is independent, except that he could still be fired Mm. by the Department of Justice. And Senator Harris wanted deputy attorney general Rosenstein to write a letter saying You are fully independent. You do what you need to do, and we are not going to interfere. And the deputy attorney general had lots of things to say, which essentially amounted to, I have not done that, and I am not going to do that. Mm -hmm. But the moment got a lot of attention, especially on social media, because Senator McCain and ultimately Senator Burr, who was chairing the hearing, kept telling Senator Harris to let yeah. the witness answer the question and and basically insinuated that she was being rude and it it just didn't it didn't come off well. Yeah, because I think that what she was, you know, Camila Harris is a prosecutor and that came out when you look at that exchange and when she said yes or no and he would start to uh, obfuscate, how am I supposed to say that? That's right, obfuscate. Obfus- obfuscate. It's hard to say. Um Immediately, she'd be like, no, 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 you're, yes or no. Yes, or, I don't, sh- I, it's a yes or no question. Answer yes or no. And he was just not going for it. And I thought that the way, I'll be honest, I mean, I think that the way they interrupted her and tried to shut her down was really rude, too. So she's a senator and you might not like the way she questions, but I am hesitant that you would go after a male Republican the same way they went after her. They did interrupt uh, Senator Heinrich, I think, a couple of times as well with the same thing of let the witness answer the question. But it was unnecessary. Neither of them were being inappropriate in any way. And I I thought this was really disappointing. And look, you don't you just don't need any of this kind of sideshow in yeah. a hearing like this. For the most part, the Senate Intelligence Committee is is doing a good job of looking like the adults in the room, right? They're, right. they're investigating this. It's mostly very bipartisan. I think Mark Warner is to receive a lot of credit for that. The vice chair of the committee, who is a Democrat, I think he's done a very good job trying to keep this 
bipartisan. So I just thought this was really undisciplined of both Senator McCain and Senator Burr to to talk down to her the way that they did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this was um, a sideshow in one respect and that the main event was the Comey hearing. It was. So James Comey, never one to bury the lead, released a written statement in advance of his testimony that detailed his practice of writing memos immediately after his conversations with the president. And so that statement really confirmed everything that we have seen reported in the New York Times in advance of these hearings. Well, and I really thought it was a good idea because, you know, it was a long hearing. What I think, see, it started at nine and ended at 12. So it was three hours long, but it went fast. I'm not going to try to lie. It was not boring. It went really fast. And I'm glad with these seven minutes question um, time period that each senator had, they didn't have to spend a lot of it like sort of establishing what happened because it was so, you know, he kind of got, let's put this all out there and then you can ask me questions about it. And we don't have to spend all our time going over the, you know, details of my interactions with the president. So I thought that was, I was glad he released it in advance. I thought the most shocking parts of the statement in advance, even I don't, I wouldn't call them bombshells. I don't think it illuminated anything. We didn't already know particularly like anything shocking anyway, One that he talked about, he never felt uh, the need to write down his interactions with previous presidents, both Bush and Obama. I thought that was really interesting that he made that point in the written memo. And it's also just really well succinctly written. Like you can tell he's a good writer. He took one of the senators made a joke about you're like, I bet you got an A in legal writing. Like it was it really was well done. It was very clear. It was very direct. It was intentional in some areas too, right? I thought it was interesting how he described the president's interest in disproving certain of the allegations from the, um, the Steele memo, which referred to the president's activities with uh, sex workers in mm. Russia. And it seemed like the president was pretty fixated on that part. And I think Comey intended to be provocative when he talked about you know, the president's interest in disproving the stuff about hookers. Like it was just, it felt very real to me. Like yeah. I, I read it and I thought this rings completely true. Well, and I did not understand until his uh, testimony before the committee, it, it made sense to me, all the assurances of we're not investigating you. I was like, why is he doing that? And when he said I was, after I had to tell him about the Steele dossier, I wanted him to understand we were not investigating him for any criminal behavior related to that so that he didn't think I was trying to hold something over his held blackmail wise. Like I, I, I finally made sense to me, all these assurances of you're not being investigated. You're not being investigated. And, and also it helped, it helped, it helped me hold the space between telling him he's not being investigated with relation to the steel dossier, but also refusing to say publicly he wasn't going to be under any investigation with regards to the larger Russia, Russian, um, intelligence interference so that he didn't have the duty to correct should he come up. You know what I mean? I think both of those things can be true. And I think it helped, helped me understand Comey's decision making framework for the past couple of years. Yeah. Like like his decisions or not, I thought this was illuminating on what those decisions have been. And essentially, I what I heard is a person who said, none of this is normal and we can't pretend like it is. And like right. he refused. I think you have to hook Comey's testimony up with what you saw from DNI Coates and Admiral Rogers. Yeah. So a big part of the exchange where Senator King was pounding the two of them for not responding to questions about their conversations with the president 
was that the two of them clearly did not know what they were supposed to say. They did not know for sure whether the White House was going to assert executive privilege. They said they didn't think so, but they didn't know for sure. And you could see them physically uncomfortable searching for that answer. And then Senator King says, will you talk about this in our closed session this afternoon? And they said, we have to talk to White House counsel first, which looked horrible. But I feel like if you put that together with Comey, what you see is just a total absence of leadership in the executive branch. And that's why I think all the questions to Comey about why didn't you tell the attorney general or why didn't you report this up the chain rang really hollow to me because if you've ever been in a situation in life where someone who has power over you is also a person you don't trust and that person is surrounded by other people you don't trust, it is crazy making. And I just, I had so much sympathy for Comey in this situation. Well, listen, I think Angus King was one of those, the the breakout stars, if you will, (laughs) both Senate hearings. I thought his questions were so, um, really got to the point. He didn't do a lot of, let me expound at the first three minutes about how I feel about all this. Like, it was just like, I have some questions. Let's talk about them. He also had the awesome meddlesome priest exchange Mm -hmm. with Comey, which I thought was um, really great. But I thought his... His independence came through. I thought the way that he questioned and got, you know, sort of got to the heart of a lot of the issues was really great. There was some real stupidity here, too. I thought the questions focused on the word hope because several senators got into how when President Trump talked with Comey about Michael Flynn, he said, I hope you can see your way clear. And they were trying to make the point as though this were a court of law. That that this doesn't rise to obstruction of justice. And look, it may not. I have no idea. But that wasn't the point of this hearing. And it does sound really stupid to say to someone, well, he just hoped he's the president of the United States. You're in the Oval Office alone with him. But he's just hoping. Okay, but here's the thing. So many things here. Okay, first of all, with the hope line of questioning, first and foremost, um, if he had not then fired the head of the FBI, maybe I would be willing to engage with you on the exact semantics of this exchange. But the elephant, um, you know, pun intended, in the room here is that he then fired him. So right. we have this big action afterwards that colors all the previous interactions. That's the first thing. Second of all, I really, and I posted this on our uh, social media pages and it got a lot of feedback. I loved sort of all the people that were like, Oh, this sounds like every woman who's ever been sexually harassed in our job. And then afterwards, they were like, well, if it's so bad, why didn't you report it? Like this victim blaming. I thought the idea that you would turn down a call from the president of the United States, immediately resign or report the president of the United States or call him out to his face in the middle of the Oval Office. So absurd and so sort of absent any real understanding of human psychology you know it's like i post on twitter have you ever tried to say no to a cop like as a i went to law school and i find it difficult to say no to like cops and doctors and people who hold any authority can you fathom what it's like to be in the oval office with the president by yourself and be like hey you know what that's really wrong you shouldn't do that like give me a break to have the presence of mind much less less the sort of wherewithal i thought comey was very self-effacing and being honest like Maybe I should have, like, maybe I wasn't strong enough, but I really hated that sort of victim blame. It's not wrong unless you report it. You didn't think it was wrong unless you immediately resigned. Give me a freaking break, guys. 
Well, especially when it's hard to imagine higher stakes than he found Mm -hmm. himself in, because the other thing and the most important thing, I think, to come through in this hearing, he is certain that Russia in a hostile way interfered in our election and that they are going to do it again and again and again. When he said they'll be back. Oh, I just wanted to vomit. Yes. And and he said this is not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's an American thing. You could tell he spoke, I thought, with genuine conviction about his concerns about this foreign power acting in a hostile way toward our country. So if you believe you're the right person to investigate that and you believe that that poses an unbelievable threat to our country and you're trying to just navigate a president who makes you really uncomfortable. All of this makes sense, I think. I I just don't have criticism for him personally. I thought Rubio looked like a man just disgusted with himself. <laughs> I'm projecting yeah. here, but like he did not look to, he did not look to be happy in that role. And look, here's the thing. Not only should we the takeaway have been that Russia interfered, they will be back. But I there are some important takeaways with here with Trump and related to that information that don't have to just be about partisan attacks on Donald Trump. The fact that he has repeatedly said that's not true. Donald Trump has repeatedly said Russia did not interfere in our election. And you have the head of the FBI and every other intelligence community, um, official director, head, whatever, saying they did. So first of all, we need to address the fact that the president keeps lying about that and is refusing to accept the reality. I also thought Comey's discussion, I don't remember who asked him this, like, well, has he ever wanted to talk to you about this? Like, now that we have the intelligence and we know that they did this, this huge, important thing, has the president ever, I don't know, wanted to talk about it? No, all he cares about is the investigation into himself. And you could sort of see Comey's disgust with the fact that he was not more concerned with this. You know, it, Obama, for all his, for all, as much as I love him, I do not think responded to this strongly enough. But he did go to Russia and was like, hey, we know you're doing this. Stop. Donald Trump hasn't even done that. And much less talk, you know, it's just I think the the import of their interference and the complete lack of response and lies from the president is so frightening and striking. But the president line was a theme throughout this hearing. So like we got we get a lot of you guys just hate Donald Trump. OK, I, I don't hate Donald Trump. I do hate that a person who is behaving in this way and seeming to prioritize his personal image over everything else is our president. I do hate that. And I'm going to be honest about it. I don't know, though, how you look at this hearing, even if you think, even if you have consistently thought that's really what I'm interested in. People who have consistently thought James Comey is either awesome or terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's been a lot of partisan, um, movement on James Comey's popularity. But wherever you've been on that question, let's say that you've consistently thought James Comey was unprofessional and that this hearing is a continuation of his unprofessionalism. Let's say you are genuinely troubled by the fact that he gave a friend information to share with the New York Times. Okay, I hear you. I still don't understand listening to what we heard in this hearing and feeling entirely comfortable with your president. I understand thinking Mm -hmm. that Donald Trump did not commit a crime. I think he probably didn't. I don't like this. Well, he's an idiot thing that Paul Ryan is trying to do as a compliment to him or something. I I don't understand leaving this hearing, which was not a criminal hearing, which was a hearing of the oversight body on our intelligence community trying to understand 
whether the president has asked our intelligence community to not do its job. I think under any reasonable interpretation, you have to be genuinely troubled by what's happening in the executive branch right now. Well, and look, it's not even the Republicans who went down this whole hope line of reasoning. They clearly made a point and major kudos to the head of the committee, Richard Burr, because they all went out of their way to say, thank you for coming. Thank you yes. for your service. You are a man of integrity and we believe you are. We believe you like it. Even if you don't like James Comey, I do feel the need to correct the record on Comey. One of our early I keep thinking about this on our earlier podcast. I talked about the sort of late night hospital drama, and I thought he was advocating for taking advantage of <laughs> the attorney general who had pancreatitis at that time and was in the hospital. It's actually the opposite. He was the one teaming up with Mueller to prevent that. And one of the things I found really striking is this was incredibly this whole scene that went down post 9-11 with him and Gonzalez Ashcroft, and yeah. Ashcroft was incredibly tense and incredibly dramatic. And you had an assistant. He was an assistant attorney general at the time and the head of the FBI, Robert Mueller, threatening to resign. He went to the White House to tell George Bush, we will resign. And he didn't even record that meeting. Like, what does that tell you about how he thought about Donald Trump, that he didn't even take memos on that incredibly contentious, dramatic showdown meeting with George? Like, I just whatever. So I think that was I think that they did a good job on that. And I think that was very purposeful. And so to get on, you know, Facebook and see so many people being like, he's a showboat. And also, let's not forget, it's not just the people on Facebook who support Donald Trump, no matter what. It's Donald Trump himself who came out and then accused the former um, head of the FBI of committing perjury, which is a crime. So now all these Republican senators are even in a worse space because now they have to decide. Do we let the president of the United States say that we ran an illegal hearing and allowed somebody to commit perjury? Or do we call him and put him under oath and say, OK, if you think he's lying, what really happened? And, you know, at that point, I don't even know what happens. I don't know what happens either. That was my reaction that I put on our Twitter feed. It is amazing to me that we are talking as though it might be normal about the fact that the president of the United States could have surreptitiously recorded his conversation with James Comey in the Oval Office. It's it's amazing to me that we're talking as though it is normal about the fact that the president of the United States could appear under oath before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Like all of these things are so beyond the pale of what a presidency looks like. And I'm not sure how we rein this back politically. At what point do Republicans in Congress just cut him loose? and stop trying to do this dance because I think regular people who are paying attention to all this have to be troubled. It's not even a dance at this point. It's like a really twisted game of twister. I mean, like you're not even swaying to, you know, like you're not even stepping out of the way. You are contorting yourself logically, emotionally, politically, in unnatural ways. <laughs> well, why don't we move on to compliment the other side? Because I feel like we could spend three hours on these hearings. <laughs> well, I do want to say, though, so that it's important that I think um, back to Senator Harris, she clearly had a line of questioning that really targeted Jeff Sessions. And now he is going to be is he coming before the Judiciary Committee or the Intelligence Committee this week? I think it's the Intelligence Committee this because week. Because in the closed session meeting, it immediately came out that he um there was another meeting with Russian officials that he did not disclose. And I was listening to the weeds and I think Matt Iglesias made a really good point where he said, you know, if you, it is not 
you know, the nuanced take and probably the realistic take is let's let's give Jeff Sessions the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume in the first in the first hearing he misspoke or he forgot or whatever. Let's we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But once it became so clear that this was a problem, that you did not disclose this meeting, that you recused yourself from the investigation, and then you continued to not disclose further meetings, which he clearly did, now we have a real problem, which I'm sure will come out in this hearing. I predicted before the Comey hearing that the person who would have the worst day was Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. Mm. And I think that is going to continue to be true. I do not think. Donald Trump will take as hard a fall for all of this as a lot of the people around him. I don't even know what all of this is because I do struggle with seeing real coordination between the campaign and the Russian government in a way that amounts to collusion. I think, like I've said before on the show, I think there's more there than a lot of people will accept and less there than a lot of other people will accept. Well, I think the truth is probably in the middle, but Jeff Sessions, I think is going to suffer gravely for all of this, much more so than the president will. Well, and what's sad is like, this is what he demands of people. His idea That's of right. loyalty is that you will con- torture yourself and make a fool of yourself and all that matters is him, which is fine if, I mean, it's not fine, it's gross, but it's just gross if they're your employee and you can make them sign non-disclosure agreements and you can fire at will and all these things. But he does not seem to sincerely understand That once you hire someone to serve in the United States government, they are not your employee. They serve the American people and they take oaths to the Constitution. And it's like that is lost on him. And these people who dedicate time and stress and, you know, usually if you work in the White House, at least you have some promise of like cushy, lucrative gigs afterwards. Well, who's going to hire Jeff Sessions or Sean Spicer or Sarah Huckabee Sanders after this, you know, like I just, I don't know. I think you make a really important point about loyalty because I've seen a lot in social media of people saying, and the president said this, right? What's, what's wrong with asking for loyalty Mm -hmm. from someone? Well, what's wrong is exactly what you said, that people aren't supposed to be loyal to the president the way they would be loyal to a king. Right. When you work in the United States government, your loyalty is to the Constitution and is to all the people that you serve. It is the definition of servant leadership. That's what we right. have in this country. And the rule so of it law, would have been which wrong. seems to be something else he's unfamiliar with. Well, Katie sent us a compliment the other side that we're going to use to say hooray for complimenting the other side happening in real life. Yes, Joe Biden. Oh, who doesn't love Papa Joe? is encouraging one-time rival Mitt Romney to return to public life and run for Senate. So we'll put the CNN story. Look, I got nothing but love for both of them. I'll be honest. I like Mitt Romney a lot. I think um, his return to the Republican Party would be fantastic. (laughs) And I love Joe Biden because he just speaks whatever the hell he wants to and always has. And that's my favorite thing about him. I think it's hopefully um, something that we'll see more of in terms of people realizing the value of strong public servants from both parties. Yes. Yes, please. If we take nothing from this, let that be. If there's anything to take, if we survive this, I hope it is the importance of public service experience. So up next in the suit, we're going to return to our ongoing discussion of political correctness in light of recent events.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So Kathy Griffin and Bill Maher did dumb things. Okay. I... I know we need to have this conversation. I've actually been thinking it a lot about it overall a lot, but it's just so discouraging that in the face of Russia's interference and all these big, huge political issues, we have to talk about this, but it is important. Culture is important. Language is important. I'm just discouraged. I think it is. I, 
listen, I agree with you. <laughs> so when we, t- when we were doing our sort of show planning, we were both like, let's just talk about all the dumb things at one time. As I thought about it more, what I think is not dumb is that there is a portion of the population that has very effectively mobilized people around first amendment talking points mm-hmm. and well-intended people can get hot in an instant when you start talking about safe spaces on college campuses. Oh my God, why are people so mad about that? I'm sorry. And that's not an accident, right? Like that's a coordinated effort to keep that talking point alive. And I think the effectiveness of that as a talking point is something worth digging into to help us understand our polarization and how we got here and how we can get out of it. So that's how I'm justifying this conversation to myself. Um, because, because I think that's true. So let's just quickly review for people who maybe were living under a rock. Kathy Griffin did a spot where she held a severed head that was a likeness of Donald Trump and the Trump family responded very forcefully. What bothered me the most about the Trump Let me say this first. That was gross and she should not have done it. And all of the people who've ever done comedy like that, I put in that same category. That is not partisan for me. I just think don't do that. That's gross. I also think, though, don't use your child as a pawn in a public relations situation. And I felt that that happened to Baron Trump here because the president and the first lady both talked publicly about how he was so um, traumatized by it. And I thought, why are you multiplying his trauma then by keeping mm-hmm. him at the center of this story? So, so that, do we want to, okay, go ahead if they're all of them. Okay. So that was Kathy Griffin. Bill Maher had a conversation with Senator Ben Sass, who I like very much. They were having a kind of wide ranging discussion. I didn't watch the entire interview, but at one point, Senator Sass suggests that Bill Maher come to Nebraska and work in the fields with him, at which point Bill Maher used the N-word in saying basically that he was not going to do that. And he used the N-word in a way that felt just completely random. I don't know why the conversation would have led him there. A number of people pointed out that he used it in a way that suggests he uses it all the time Mm. because it seemed to just sort of roll off his tongue. Senator Sass, as we previously talked about, didn't react at all really during the interview and then later posted on social media that he wished that he had pushed back in the interview. Um, And so that was the situation with Bill Maher. Let's talk about celebrities first and then talk about college students. Okay. So I, um, let me say this as uh, with the least amount of nuance humanly possible. I don't care. I don't care when Toby Keith spouts off. I don't care, you know, and I am consistent on this. I can show you a college editorial I wrote back in my Rambler days at Transylvania University when the Dixie Chicks suffered incredible, you know, death threats and all kinds of terrible career repercussions because they said the, they were embarrassed the president of the United States was from Texas. And I said then, and I maintain it now, I um, am interested in occasionally in what celebrities' political beliefs are, but like, do I care? Does it affect my life? No, I don't think, I think that was gross. What Kathy Griffin did, if you, you know, if you're a huge Kathy Griffin stand-up comedy fan and you never want to buy a a Kathy Griffin ticket again, that's a totally and completely reasonable reaction. 
the idea that this woman needs to have her entire career ended. And you know who I kept thinking about in relationship to this is like Billy Bush. Let me tell you words I never thought I'd say. Poor Billy Bush. Why did Billy Bush lose his job for listening to Donald Trump say, grab him by the pussy, but Donald Trump got elected president. I need somebody to help me understand that. Like, what is happening? And Bill Maher is a jerk. He's always been a jerk. You know, the only credit I will give Bill Maher is he brought Ice Cube on and Ice Cube was like, he was not letting it go. He was shaming him heavy. And I think that's great. And I think he deserved that. And Kathy Griffin, you know, whatever, when people said that's gross and she immediately was like, eh, I went too far and took it off and apologized. Like, can't we just leave it in that space? Does it have to become this, you know, they need to have their lives ruined. And, you know, the reason other presidents, and I didn't like it when, when George W. Bush spoke out about the Dixie Chicks, your pulpit is too big and it's not appropriate for you to attack private citizens, even if they're celebrities. Like, I just think that that is so problematic. You know, like you, not to mention that with Trump, you have people who will immediately just go full death threats on anybody who criticizes him or, you know, Sarah uh, Silverman talks about how she had to have security at her latest stand up because she said, you know, she tweeted something about Donald Trump. Like it's just, it's inappropriate for a president. And I don't know. I just, I don't care what they think. Like, do I think that they should be, if they went too far and somebody's like, yeah, that was stupid. But like the response should be in proportion to the fact that it's just a celebrity saying something political. It doesn't affect your life at all. I think this is the dark side of social media because every mistake becomes a viral moment mm. that suddenly everyone gets invested in and has to have a position on. And it's just not healthy for anybody. I don't need to, I completely agree with you. I just don't need to expend brain cells thinking about these things. Like just be proportionate to what it is. It's just Bill Maher on his stupid HBO show. It's just Kathy Griffin. Like, I don't uh, help me why we care. So the college student situation, let's talk about, uh, I'm just as frustrated here. I'm not being, I'm not, I don't have a lot of nuance. I'm getting pretty upset with this whole thing. The most recent college student story that circulated, I think, is a little different, slightly different from some of the other college student situations. So you pick a day and someone has a story of a college campus meant to infuriate you and or or to infuriate you that other people are infuriated about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another thing. These have just become kind of a go to click baiting thing. And, and maybe that's the theme of a lot of this. The way that you get compensated for content online creates a lot of really bad incentives that blow up these First Amendment tangential situations. And I want to talk about that in a second, too. But for a while, the story on college campuses was that, you know, a speaker would be invited and then students would protest because they didn't want to hear that speaker. And then the speaker would be disinvited. Well, and, and this is ran, a, this is a, there is a group you, and we'll, we'll share the New York Times article that pays these speakers. And it's like their intention is to push this whole conservative viewpoints aren't welcome on college campuses narrative. So they pay Ann Coulter to come anticipating that they will protest and then she will not come, which I find very disingenuous. So it runs the gamut from people like Ann Coulter to people like Steve Forbes and Condoleezza Rice and more kind of, I'll say mainstream or people in the conservative intelligentsia versus the conservative like shock jock world. And 
So, so people get very exercised about those circumstances. There was also a sort of viral moment at Evergreen State University in the Pacific Northwest a couple of weeks ago because a group of students got together with a list of demands. It seemed to spring from a particular professor that the students wanted fired. They wanted members of the campus police fired. The campus has a tradition of a day where Black students don't come to campus to highlight the the importance of their people in the functioning of the world. I'm not saying this very articulately, but, you know, a day without kind of mentality, right? And they wanted white students and faculty members to not come to campus on that day. And this professor expressed his opinion that that took this this sort of protest moment from a very important demonstration of the contributions of African Americans to an oppressive act, keeping other, other folks off campus, that it kind of, that it, that it twisted what it was supposed to be. And some of the students found that racist and started demanding that he be fired. And their list of demands went viral. The university president's responses to those demands went viral. And it just became a thing that people got into this outrage spiral about. So my favorite take of all this is my husband who said, why do people get so mad about college students protesting? Of course they protest. They have the free time. Like that's what they're supposed to do. They've always protested because they have free time that the rest of us don't have, which I thought was really funny. But like, you know, this is my frustration with the college situation. You know, I'm not at Evergreen State and I don't know and I will not speak to the appropriateness of a reaction from a black student because I don't go there and I'm not black and I'm not going to tell them how they feel about going there as a black student is right or wrong. I refuse to do that. But and what really bothers me is, you know, like I texted my dad with some of the latest Trump Russia interference news and his response was, well, what about those students who walked out on Mike Pence? What about them? And I, you know, my stance on college students across the board is, again, does not affect my life. I would like to pay attention to the people sitting in the Oval Office or the United States Senate or the United States House of Representatives making decisions that affect my health care, making decisions that affect our military and whether they live or die, whether people overseas live or die and not pay attention to what college students are riled about. Now, let me say, that doesn't mean that I don't think these discussions are important. I think the um, discussions about language and being politically correct so that you are not offending people with different experiences than you are really important. But the rage reaction, the the sort of emotional importance that we place on each individual act is incredibly disproportionate to me to the impact of those acts. Like, and I just, to me, it's just, it's so ironic. The idea of like, well, liberals overact, overreact when you say something that's sort of racist. So I'm going to lose my shit about college and safe spaces. Like maybe we should all just calm down and have these conversations without acting that the world's on fire. I think that we should all calm down and not act like the world is on fire. I struggle to be a forceful representative of the opposite perspective on this. And part of that is just a function of personality. Like, 
I'm kind of a sensitive person. I like being sensitive. I particularly like being sensitive to other people. Kind of one of my whole things is making other people comfortable. So I don't in any way feel offended by the idea that college students who are in a laboratory for ideas and language are concerned with ideas and language. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person who cares a lot about the constitution, I am troubled by how distorted we have, uh, taken the discussion on the first amendment, how much we've distorted that discussion. So true. Because the first amendment guarantees that the government cannot restrict our speech. And then there are lots of layers under that, which doesn't mean that speech is wholly unregulated. Right. We're free to speak. We are never free of the consequences of that speech by private actors. So, yeah, I think that it's harsh sometimes that people lose their jobs over speech, but they can. Mm -hmm. Kathy Griffin is not entitled to host the New Year's event with Anderson Cooper. And if she becomes a bad business bet for CNN, so be it. Like, that's the consequence of her speech. And Ann Coulter has a right to speak. But not at Transylvania, which is no. a private institution, right? And if people decide they don't want her, they're fine. I, I can't understand why university presidents go the shock jock route. I think there's enough to be debated to have kind of reasonable representatives of all, prof- all perspectives come to campus. I do understand, though, that, again, colleges are laboratories for ideas. And so... Part of that is having you confront some things that are pretty foreign to you and pretty shocking to you. And and so maybe there's value in having Ann Coulter there. But but it doesn't trouble me that people protest that. And it doesn't trouble me that university administrators feel compelled to react to that protest. The, the other comment that I really have about this is when I think about it as a parent, you know, how I view this from a lens of what's legal or what's politically viable or whatever um, it's different than how I feel about it as a parent. I do want my daughters to confront things that are difficult for them. And I recognize that my daughters are going to walk into college with a whole set of privileges and a lot of obstacles out of their way uh, that other students won't have. And so the appropriate balance of that is probably going to be different for them than from some other students. But I think you're a lot happier as a parent when you realize that you have a person, not a pet that you're Mm -hmm. raising. And I'm trying to develop a resilience in my kids uh, that I'm not in my schnauzer, you know, and and I don't say that lightly. I mean it to say I as much as I want them to be comfortable with every single thing that comes at them, especially because they have had such privilege in life. I do want them to go to college and have their feelings hurt sometimes and to hear things that really bother them and to hear things that make them wonder if they share a planet with the person speaking those words. So if Mike Pence came to Jane's school, I would want Jane to sit and listen respectfully to the vice president of the United States. And then I would want her to come home and us have some honest conversations about what she heard. Um, and I would also, again, want that's her, as a parent, you know, right. And you would also want her to look at the student who wants to walk out on Mike Pence and say, that's your right. Absolutely. And encourage you. Let's talk about why you, I feel comfortable sitting and why you feel comfortable walking out. Both reactions can be okay. We don't have and to if, pick a right reaction. 
And I want her to listen and then decide if the next time she's going to be out with the student protesting or sitting and listening. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I want her to make those decisions intentionally and based on a lot of information. That's not going to be the right choice for every parent, you know, and I guess I feel a little bit with college campuses, like why are people who are normally on the side of my family chooses what's best for us so fervent and adamant about what all students should be exposed to? I don't I don't get that. It feels like a departure from the from the core ideology to me. Well, and here's the other thing that I feel like there's a lot of like pieces all in this. And so let me see if I can pull a couple of the threads out that I've been batting around in my own head. So I think that I understand why some people feel a hypocrisy from the left that if you say something racist at your job, I would like you or sexist at your job, then there is I I think that the narrative is, well, liberals want you fired from your job if you say something racist or sexist. And that is the overabundance of politically correct culture. But they want freedom of speech for liberal celebrities. And, you know, they want them to be able to say whatever they want and be left alone. So I get that. I get that. And I get that, you know, there seems to be that there is a right and wrong speech. And let me make this clear. I do think there are some right and wrong speeches. I am willing to stand up for Kathy Griffin's right to say something politically that other people don't agree with. I am not willing to defend someone's right to say something sexist or racist. And I think they're two different things. I will not defend those Harvard students saying racist, terrible, sexist things over Facebook Messenger, and I think that Harvard made the right decision to revoke their admissions because I think there should be consequences for politically incorrect speech that is racist or sexist or ageist or whatever. But I will most certainly defend the right of those students to walk out of Mike Pence's speech because they politically disagree with him. I think there is a difference between engaging with ideas and and thinking that you have the right to be a jerk. So... You know, and that is what I think a lot of times is happening is the I should be able to say this because it's true, because it's a stereotype. My favorite quote ever is stereotypes, Mike, there is truth in stereotypes, but they are incomplete. You know, like that's what politically correct is saying. It's not saying that you've never encountered a racist stereotype or a sexist stereotype in your life. That wasn't true. We're not speaking to the untruth of your experiences. We're just saying that. In a multicultural, pluralistic society, we have to acknowledge that the reality is more complex than that, and we all have to be a little bit more careful about the racist, sexist, sexist crap that can come out of our mouths. And I mean everybody. So, you know, that's what bothers me. It's like we're talking about two different things. And it's not easy because the line does keep moving as mm-hmm. we learn more. I was in a discussion about women in leadership and it's this room full of people and the discussion leader wants to have this conversation about feminine qualities that enhance leadership in the workplace. Nope. And, and she wanted to extend that to politics. Right. And, and she wanted to talk about that with such earnest enthusiasm and the reaction from parts of the room 
shared her earnest enthusiasm about that because she really wanted to make the point. It's good for our culture to have women in all kinds of positions of authority because of these things that they bring to those positions that are distinct from what we typically see. But then a lot of the room had the reaction and, and, and people use words like this. She was trafficking in gender stereotypes in a way that was harmful to women and men and even more harmful to people who don't identify as either who are on some, uh, you know, uh, fluidity in that spectrum. And it was a really miserable hour of everyone <laughs> kind of grappling with, okay, what, what do we talk about from here? Mm. Because her intention was not at all to have a conversation that was exclusive of people who do not fit the stereotypes that were underlying the discussion she wanted to have. She, she wanted to celebrate some of those stereotypes, right? Her intention was not to exclude people who are transgender or, you know, or anywhere else in, in kind of the spectrum that we're coming to better understand every day. Well, can I say and, what I, can I say what I would have, uh, corrected the 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 this panel to yes i of would course. say let's talk about traditional let's talk about skills and characteristics that are seen as feminine and undervalued in our current economy where they are very important not because women are born with these but because they are associated with women they are undervalued how do we change that because then you're avoiding all that kinder sex bullshit. Which we don't want to go back to that. That's why they try to give us, not give us the vote. Oh, we're protecting them because they're so much kinder and gentler and they need to be kept out of the man's world. But at the same time, there is, there are traditionally feminine qualities, empathy, collaboration, that not women aren't born being better at, but because they are associated with women, they're undervalued. And men are taught them and little boys are taught that they're not important and they're not valuable. And that happens not only in characteristics and skills, but jobs and all kinds of things. So let's, let's talk about how we see the, the, the val, we all know the value in these quote unquote statistically feminine characteristics or jobs or whatever. And how do we place value on them? That's what I would have done. See, you would have done that because you were really listening, right? And you were presuming that everyone had good intentions instead of having your feelings hurt because you didn't like the topic or having your feelings hurt because somebody didn't like your topic and getting really defensive about it. Another example of this, I'm trying to say, I understand why people find political correctness or what they perceive as political correctness frustrating. Another example of this, I was on a panel and a question was directed to me on the panel of how do you project confidence as a woman? without being called a bitch. And I wanted in the room to say, you are going to be called a bitch no matter what. And you should give, you know, zero words that rhyme with trucks. That's how they ask the question. How, how do you, how do you avoid well, being called the calling word that rhymes bitch, with which? It's your, their problem, not yours. But listen, I had, so I said, you are going to be called that if you think, feel, or say anything worth thinking, feeling, or saying at some point. And, and you shouldn't care about it and you should move on. And that's a reflection of the person, not of you. And, but then I said, but let's talk about the distinction between confidence and arrogance. And let's talk about the way that you treat people in the workplace that is an indicator of confidence versus arrogance. And so I had that conversation. Well, there were several people in the room who were just incensed at the word bitch being brought into the conversation at all and talked about how offensive that word is. I mean, I didn't bring it into the conversation and I didn't love the question, but it was the question I got. So I worked with it. But, you know, I, 
I thought to myself, like, I share your perspective that that's not a great word. I don't like it. I, I wish that women weren't called that in a variety of circumstances, but also it's just a word. I'm not going to get all worked up about it, you know, and I'm not going to blow up the discussion because I don't like a word that's been used. And I think that that's how, how we have poured gasoline on like a tiny flicker in some circumstances by telling people words are important. In fact, they're so important that your words are more important than what I think you intend. Your words are more important than the thrust of the entirety of what's in your heart and mind. And I think that we just have to look for a balance because I do think the words are important. I also think though, listening with the intention of understanding and recognizing that everyone's words aren't going to be perfect. So if we could all be in a space of my words aren't going to be perfect either, what can I learn? And how can I share what I have learned with people whose words aren't perfect? Then we're going to have good conversations instead of just yelling at each other. And then I think we'll stop um, taking things like racist, sexist, um, homophobic, Islamophobic, as an immediate reaction to an idea that we disagree with, because that's part of it too, right? If I support extreme vetting at our border, I must be Islamophobic. Well, maybe, but can we have that conversation to really get to the heart of it instead of immediately transposing something on an ideology? Well, and also the thing is, I agree with what you said. I also agree that the N-word is so powerful. No one should ever say it, especially if you have white skin. And that there are certain things that are, they're just no goes. Don't wear blackface ever, ever, ever. Don't use the N word ever, ever, ever. Like I'm okay with that too. I think you can occupy, you know what I mean? Like just occupy both spaces, y'all. It's cool. It's fun here. Come hang out with me and Beth. We occupy these sort of what other people might characterize as conflicting spaces all the time because that's how life is. Like I, I think that the other problem is I was listening and I think it was Freakonomics. I'll put the link in the show notes. And they were talking to the implicit bias researcher, the one at Harvard who does the implicit bias test. And, you know, people, black people score high as having black, negative black stereotypes on the implicit bias test. Women score high as having the high on the, um, you know, se- you know, sexual stereotypes test because what we're talking about at this point when we are paying such a good like such intense attention to our words and to the stereotypes surrounding people what we're trying to get at is that this isn't about being a member of the kkk like this is about deep-seated subconscious you know the water we all swim in in a sexist racist society And it's not about I'm looking at you and telling you you have bad intentions towards black people. I don't think that other black people have bad intentions towards black people. And there are black cops who get involved in black shootings like this is something much deeper. And when it and when it we're talking about subconscious reactions and we're talking about concepts, we all organize ourselves around that we don't really even fully comprehend. We're going to have to have, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard conversations. It's going to be being hyper aware of how we talk and what we say and how it affects other people because we've, you know, we've done this sort of stuff that is, you know, black and white. We've changed the laws. We've, well, some of the laws and, you know, we're not talking about Jim Crow segregation anymore. It's going to have to go to a deeper level, a level that makes us all uncomfortable. 
a level in which we have to confront people who have opinions that might seem crazy to us and where we have to think through, you know, inherent biases and really difficult stereotypes about ourselves and about other people. And where we going to have to say that a lot of us aren't used to because of our privilege. I am not an expert in someone else's opinion. I am not an expert in someone else's experience. And that doesn't mean that we can't say some things are not okay. We absolutely can. But like, I'm just not going to, you know, look at a black person or an Asian person or a gay person and say, you really shouldn't be offended by that. I'm not comfortable doing that. You know why? Because men have done that to me about what I shouldn't be offended about as a woman. And it makes me want to burn the place to the ground. Like, and I also think, that there is a lot of, you know, with privileged opinions and privileged outlooks, particularly white, male, Christian opinion, outlooks and perspectives that have been privileged. I saw a really great person on Facebook today say, sometimes when you're privileged, equality, when you start being treated equally like everyone else, it begins to feel like oppression. And I thought that was such a good way to put it. Like, I think there's a little bit of this, like, oh, no, I can't say exactly what I think all the time based on my position of privilege. And that makes me feel like I'm being attacked. No, you're just be you're just going to have to be. It's like James Comey. James Comey knows what it's like now to be <laughs> a sexually harassed woman. Like, it's just a position that you have to understand. And sometimes, you know, Muslims know what it's like to have religious beliefs that other people are un- don't like and that are unpopular. And evangelicals are going to have to get used to the fact that their belief that gay marriage is wrong is unpopular and they're going to have to sit in the space in which they hold a view that the majority of people don't like. So, I mean, I just think that that we're going to have to make space for all that and it's difficult and it's a complicated little pool we're swimming in, but this idea that there is a right or wrong way to be and a right or wrong way to react, I don't know. I don't think it's getting us anywhere and I don't want to talk about college students anymore. <laughs> well, no one is telling you that you can't have those views. Mm -hmm. You can. But people might not like them. Sorry. (laughs) You're going to experience consequences of having those views. And, and sometimes it's going to be worth it to you, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we're living in a world, if we became an atheist majority country where it was totally unpopular to have a spiritual, a, a deity framework, right? I'm, I'm going to endure the consequences of that because it's important to me to believe what I believe. Right. And, and so there are going to be situations like that where you just have to weigh that out. To me, that's the essence. This is why I get so confused about where the Republican party is on this, because part of the reason that I have historically identified as Republican is because I think of it as being about individual responsibility and what you're talking about with implicit bias. Yes, that runs very, very deep. It is also something that we can teach ourselves to overcome. We can teach ourselves to respond to it differently. We can teach ourselves to work with it differently. Um, I think the new Invisibilia. Oh, it's so good. Season, I almost brought it up a minute ago, but I was afraid I'd go off on a tangent. Oh, it's so well, good. Here I go on a tangent. I mean, it's so good, y'all. Let's just do a been, whole show on it. It's been really painful for me to listen to because one of the stories at the heart of what they're talking about with emotions is an experience that I've lived personally. Mm-hmm. And so it has been really, really, I've had to listen to it in very small, like segments, but it's really good. And part of what they're saying through the first two episodes of the new season is that emotions are not as hardwired into us as we mm-hmm. like to believe they are. Our emotions Absolutely. are not inevitable. 
And they're real and they're important, but they come from the concepts that we surround ourselves in. And so I think when we're talking about implicit bias and all of the aspects of becoming more conscious of other people, what we're really saying is, hey, my brain can do better. Let me teach it to. And there gotta be, there have to be all kinds of like positive externalities of that from a selfish perspective too, not just a communal perspective. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So I was listening to that and that one about the implicit bias all at one time and you were in London. I couldn't talk about any of it. It was just awful. So I'm so (laughs) glad you brought it up. Um, because here's the thing. I think particularly for some of my conservative friends and family members, when I say, Your emotions are relevant, but they are not reality. And I say we can take these concepts like that. There's not this really there are very few truly objective experiences and everything is colored by our emotions and our concepts and our emotions are informed by these concepts and these concepts are steeped in our culture, which is racist and sexist and all these things. They hear me saying that I am giving a complete abdication of personal responsibility. And that's what they react to. And it's the opposite of that, right? It's the opposite, y'all. If you, (laughs) oh, it's the opposite. If you see yourself and everything that happens to you as totally dependent on the choices you make and your sort of, you know, personal responsibility and free will, that is a prison. That means you have to figure out every single thing and how it applies to you and your unique situation. That's exhausting and terrible and awful. However, if you say, oh, wait, I'm a big dumb animal like everybody else. And there are these rules and these um, concepts that govern all of us. And if I can and I and I can learn this woman spent her entire life exploring human emotions and that applies to me and I could just take that. All her hard work and all her learning and all her concepts and see the concepts that work and then don't work and then just apply them to my life. I mean, you know, there's an ease of which I'm speaking that's not as quite as easy to change the concepts you're born with. But that's empowering. That's freeing. All of a sudden you have the entirety of human experience to look at and draw conclusions as opposed to just figuring it out in your own little pea-shaped brain. Like, no, this is so much better. Well, I think it's that... I am not a slave to my biology or my sociology or my psychology. Absolutely. If I am willing to be introspective and I am willing to live intentionally, I can overcome all of those things. Now, is my potential to overcome all of those things unlimited? I'm sure not. But it's not dependent on you either. That's what's great. right? You can look how somebody else overcome them and be like, okay, that's great. That worked. Like my friend, go ahead. And well, I, the other thing I was just going to say is we all start at different places along that journey, mm-hmm. right? And that's important to recognize too. But that to me is the essence of this entire conversation about political correctness distilled. You don't have to be what you are in terms of how you think and speak and react to other people. You can do better than that. And that's just growth. It's not restriction. It's not somebody beating you down or telling you that what you believe is wrong. It's just deciding to give your brain all of the inputs and then make your own choices about what you're going to do with that information. 
Because I was going to say one of my friends was talking about Sheila's learning about addiction and she was saying that they call it the the it's like the burden of individuality. Like a lot of addicts have trouble gaining treatment or um, in their steps through recovery because they tell themselves well, that won't work for me. That won't ha- that won't work for me. And look, we all do it. I mean, one of my favorite books is Stumbling on Happiness. Uh, and he talks about how we all think we're so unique and we can't just look at what somebody else did and won't applaud us because we're different. It's unique. No, you're not unique. We're all like, we're all pretty much alike. <laughs> and so if, if the, you know, if AA worked for the thousands of alcoholics before you, it's going to work for you too. And if you do the steps and work the process and, you know, that sort of freeing yourself from this idea of like, you have to find the exact lock and combination for you, or, you know, it's just really about you powering through these. No, come on, man. Like if you're having a problem, talk to other people who's had that problem and gotten through it and figure out what they did. And I think that if you, you know, if you are with regards to politically correct, the, the politically correctness and what people get so fired up about is you're, you're really refusing to acknowledge that we have more in common. And what you're saying is my individual perception of your, your offensiveness is more important than you saying, Hey, that offends me. You know what I mean? Like, just take a moment and be like the black person who says that's offensive is a human being just like you and gets their feelings just like you. And maybe if you were black, you'd got your feelings hurt, too. Like, just take them at their word. We're all more alike than we are different. You're not an expert on everything. and You don't have to be. That's freeing and empowering, you know. And I think that that but it's so hard because it sounds like, well, if I'm not an expert in anything, then I can just do whatever I want because nothing matters. And it's it's the exact opposite. But it's really hard to convey. If you have a, if you have a poll, I'm about to put on Facebook, like check your pulse. Are you alive? Listen to Invisibilia. <laughs> and pantsy politics, of course. I want y'all to know that we cut three segments from this show <laughs> to keep the length manageable. Yet here we are. So Sorry, in the Nicholas, heels today, this is our belated birthday present to our executive producer, Nicholas Holland, the longest show ever. Happy birthday, Nicholas. In the heels, <laughs> we will briefly discuss what's on our minds outside of politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. 
Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I mean, Sarah, I'm sorry, what are you thinking about? I'm sorry we had to keep going. We were just really solving some stuff. Let's just be honest about that. Sometimes we're really there. Well, so <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about Stonehenge. I couldn't stand that you weren't at Stonehenge with me. I've been to Stonehenge, though. I was not excited about going to Stonehenge, to be honest with you, because I thought I was going to get there and be like, hmm, rocks. Yeah. Kind of how when I was in the eighth grade, I went to the Black Forest in Germany and I got there and I was like, hmm, trees. But... <laughs> I had a very different and very strong reaction to Stonehenge. And part of what I think set me up for it was, so when you get to Stonehenge, if you haven't been, it's out in the middle of nowhere in England. Like it's just open fields and sheep everywhere on your way to Stonehenge. And then suddenly in the distance in a field, you're like, oh, there's Stonehenge. And it looks exactly like every picture of it you've ever seen. Well, you start off by going into a museum where you can learn a little bit about the people that constructed Stonehenge and sort of the time period. And there's a wall of quotes about Stonehenge. And one of those quotes just jumped right out at me. It was something like, every era gets the Stonehenge it desires or deserves. Mm. And that just hung over me. And so then you get on a bus and you go up to the actual Stonehenge site and, and you see how the rocks have been placed and how they line up with the sun and, and can, you know, can kind of have your own experience there. It's mostly people taking selfies with Stonehenge, which sort of got on my nerves, but 
<laughs> you know, it is what it is. I said to Chad, I'm a little bit worried that our era's Stonehenge is going to be the selfie that later people are going to look at us and be like, they were totally afraid of being alone and they worshiped themselves. But anyway, <laughs> um, I take selfies to no judgment. I j- it just made me think about that a lot. But, but I wondered kind of what you thought about Stonehenge and, I've really been grappling with this, this idea of, of there's a Stonehenge for every era. We just don't know what ours is yet. And also with the idea that I looked at the rocks and the, the careful placement of everything and was thinking about all of the burial that was done around that site. And I do think it says a lot about what we're all searching for. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, I think when I got there, the first thing you're, I mean, you kind of, it's, I've never been to the pyramids, but I've had sort of similar thought processes like, how did they get these heavy? I'm not sure I would know the exact process to create Stonehenge now with our modern tools and equipment. So the fact that they did this with, I mean, I don't, I don't know how they do it. And so, but I love that in an era where everything was so high stakes and, you know, that everything, you know, people died young, there wasn't always enough food, that human beings had this drive to like spend so much time and energy creating something that that tried to answer big questions and give their life meaning. And I do think for all our modern um, country, culture, society's faults, we do do a lot of things that that drive us and try to create meaning Um I think the internet will will seem, you know, well, I think the internet seems crazier to generations before it than it will probably. It'll be such a, a fact of life. But I think this, this desire for connection and to answer questions and to go to push yourself to define those things is a really beautiful thing about the human race. And um, I think that, that, um, We've made progress in Stonehenge Shim. I'm kind of proud of us, right? We've answered, we haven't answered questions, but I think our questions have gotten much better. And, um, our treatment of each other has certainly gotten better overall. And I don't know. I I think it's, it's a beautiful sort of big, big thing to take in. That's exactly what I said to Chad. These people survival consumed their days Mm -hmm. and they still going to take this this. time out to build this crazy thing. (laughs) And it's an, it's an unbelievable structure. I mean, you do look at it and think, how did they do this? The only thing that bothered me about the exhibit, which is otherwise very well done is that it it lets you know that there were lots of people who kind of ranked highly in society buried around Stonehenge. And I'm Mm. pretty interested in burial art, in part because of a great professor that Sarah and I both had, Kim Miller at Transylvania, um, who taught a wonderful class on African burial art. But the one thing that I did not like about the exhibit was that there were human remains displayed in it from the site. And I thought... These people went to so much trouble that we classify it as a wonder of the world to create this and bury themselves with it. Can we not put them put in them glass cases? Can, yeah, we that's not, gross. can we have some respect? Um, so anyway, that, that was the only thing that bugged me, but it was an amazing experience. Definitely worth doing. And I'm happy that we got to chat about it. Awesome. So I am thinking about something much less historically important in the um, history of mankind, which is the new season of Orange is the New Black. (laughs) So I stayed up till 2 a.m. watching the first five episodes. And then I got to say, I just said, 
I don't want to spend six more hours of my life on this. And I just read what happened. Not near as good as the last season. The last season was freaking genius. So good. But Jinji Cohen, who I've been a fan of for a long time, she did weeds. She kind of does this. She kind of spits and starts with this one. One season's great. One season you're like, what the hell was that about? So I guess it was probably, I had to expect it was coming. I still think it is one of the best yeah, especially when it was created, but even still now, as far as the diversity of narratives of women, the diversity of women on that show, the diversity of experience of women of that show, I don't, I think there's difficulty other, any other places touching that. And I think that's fantastic, but not feeling new season. Give me a shout out. Tell me what you're thinking out there, y'all. Yeah, I don't watch that one. I tried two episodes and I couldn't do it. I did watch on the plane 13 hours. Have you seen 13 hours about Benghazi? No. It has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton, okay? It is not a political movie. It is about the people who were there when Benghazi was attacked. And it is phenomenal. It's such a good movie. The only problem I had with it was that all of the guys who were protecting the the CIA compound there were so recognizable that you're like, be careful, Nurse Jackie's husband. Be <laughs> I couldn't see them outside of those roles, but it's really, really good. I know people want us to talk about Wonder Woman. We are going to do that, just not today, because we would add another 75 minutes probably onto this podcast. We will be making a special discussion of Wonder Woman, our bonus episode for this month for our Pantsu Politics patrons. So go check out patreon.com forward slash Pantsu Politics and find the subscription button so you can get this bonus episode for June. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. As always, thank you and happy birthday to Nicholas Holland, our executive producer. Also, thank you to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff and Leslie Kirkendall. You can follow us on social media, Pantsuit Politics on Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politic with no S on Twitter because our characters are limited. Your Apple iTunes reviews mean a lot to us. They really help people find Pantsuit Politics. So if you haven't done that, please do. Again, patreon.com, P-A-T-E. No, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot <laughs> com if you want to support us. And until we talk with you on Friday, joy the Revolution Choir.